As was mentioned earlier during the announcement section, certainly we are delighted for the presence of each and every individual today. Our membership at Pippin and certainly the visitors have come our way. We trust that each of us will be encouraged and edified in the most holy faith and that we shall be able to, on the occasion of our departure today, to say it's been good. In fact, it's been very good for us to be here. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up unto the house of the Lord, the opening verse of Psalm 122. As you may have noted on the wall to my left, as well as, of course, on that uh, uh, statement in the bulletin, you notice the title of the lesson this morning is Authority in Aaron's Rod. And to our mind comes a very interesting and moving scene in the heart of the book of Numbers. In fact, as Brother Colonel read that a moment ago, I hope that as you give thought to just the one verse that we read, really the entirety of chapters 16 and 17 assist us to develop and more thoroughly consider what went on on that occasion. It is true that today we shall give some passing remarks and comments to those two chapters, ultimately hoping to come to the main principle, the main idea, and use that to assist ourselves. In fact, as you look at what's next on this slide, isn't it safe to say that authority in any location in which God has authorized or delegated it is of incredible importance? The authority in the home, the authority in the church, the authority in other regions or realms of life in as much as God has set it forth. And we understand that those statements in the Bible are not just given as idle words. They are given so that you and I might critically appreciate the nature of the absolute authority of God and understand that in the ways He has bequeathed it or delegated it, it behooves us to respect that delegation. It behooves us not to question it or to in fact weasel our way out of it, if you'll pardon that expression, but rather to simply do that which is in harmony with the authority that God has set forth. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, I hope today that you and I can seek to appreciate somewhat interestingly and thoroughly this matter of authority using as our guide this interesting scene in the Old Testament. In fact, here's the setting. I've entitled it near the top, as you can tell, The Scenes of Ancient Israel. In fact, is it true that you and I remember well what took place in general form? The children of Israel found themselves in Egyptian captivity. They found themselves mightily oppressed and afflicted. And ultimately, God raised up a gentleman named Moses and his brother named Aaron. And they, in fact, were given the charge, bring my people out of Egypt. Let my people go. You'll notice the authority inherent in that statement. God had vested these two gentlemen with authority. Let my people go. They had the absolute character of being able to go before the Pharaoh and demanding that he let the people of God go. You'll notice that that statement wasn't just by virtue of Moses and Abram. It was by virtue of the fact God gave them that authority. Isn't it interesting as you look furthermore on that slide? We find in Exodus chapters 4 and following that this people did, in fact, leave Egypt. God brought ten plagues upon the land of Egypt, and they, in fact, ultimately were hastened out of the land. As they did so, we remember that their leader on earth was Moses and Aaron. These were the gentlemen. These were the ones hand-selected by the God of heaven to serve as their leaders. You'll notice on that slide then that there were some problems that developed in the wilderness. Problems that highlight the fact that on a few occasions these people were not satisfied with the authority that God had vested. They weren't satisfied with what had taken place by virtue of the statement of the God of heaven. Thus, you'll notice that on the particular slide, 
you'll notice that there was a group of people. And they, in fact, had the nerve, they had the audacity, if you'll pardon that pun, to give some thought to challenging Moses and Aaron. In fact, in verses 4 and 5 of Numbers chapter 16, this band, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and on, they specifically said, all of the people are holy. All of the people are sanctified. And Moses and Aaron, it is not your business to elevate yourself above them. God respects all of Israel, and so we can minister in the same way you can. You see, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and on wished to have the same stature of respect, the same stature of consideration as Moses and Aaron enjoyed. At this point, a crisis was on the verge of developing. You'll notice this people still needed to wander for quite some time in the wilderness ultimately. How would God handle this question of authority? Well, you'll notice, God on that occasion gave an order. And this order was to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this band of people. That is, don't stand with them, don't stand in their company, you separate yourself. Later, you'll notice God also said, not only the priests, Moses and Aaron, but in fact the congregation of Israel was told to separate yourself from this band of rebels. At that point, Moses then made this tremendous statement. In the very hearing of all the congregation of Israel, Moses said, If these men, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, if these men die the common death, then I am no prophet of God. But if, on the other hand, they meet an unusual, peculiar variety of death, then rest assured that God is behind this. And in fact, it is His edict, it is His choice to deal with them in this way. And so as the verses followed, Moses then told Korah and Dathan and Abiram, Tomorrow you appear at the tabernacle. You come ready, and God will settle this matter. So they at first were hesitant. They first said, we will not come. Do you gain a sense of the rebelliousness of these people? Here was God through Moses ordering them to come, and they said, we won't. Take that, Moses. You'll appreciate, however, that they ultimately were encouraged to come by virtue of the fact that they were told to bring their censer, and thus they would be allowed to officiate in some way at the tabernacle, and that excited them. They thought they were going to get what they wanted. So the next day, they all arrived at the tabernacle, and again, Moses makes a speech to them. He discusses with them, and ultimately he reaches a point in that description which he says, the earth is going to swallow them alive. You'll notice what happened. God claved the earth beneath Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and they went down into this pit fully alive. They, their children, their wives, God handled this matter of the questioning of authority, didn't He? These are not on equal par with Moses and with Aaron. These are not on equal consideration of respect before the God of heaven as Moses and Aaron. You'll notice as that chapter rolls forward, that does then bring us to chapter number 17. God now makes a statement to identify and to fully settle this matter of the questioning of authority. As you can see on the bottom of that slide, God commanded each of the tribes of Israel to collect a rod. So there would be 12 rods, one from each of the tribes of Israel, and God told Moses, you lay them up in the tabernacle overnight. Moses did that. In the morning when he came to the tabernacle, guess what he discovered? Of all of those rods, eleven of them had done nothing. They were still as lifeless. 
They were still as dead, if you please, as they had been when Moses brought them into the tabernacle. But one of them, the one representative of the tribe of Levi and the one that had Aaron's name on it, that rod had budded. It, it budded blossoms and blooms. In fact, even brought forth fruit. We're told almonds were born by this rod. God on that occasion then settled this matter of authority. The one whom I choose is to be the respected authority in Israel. And I have chosen Moses and Aaron. I have chosen them and all these others and are not to disrespect it. And they are not to question it. Can you imagine standing there in that group of people and watching the earth split apart and swallowing these characters alive? The text even says that the people of Israel heard their cries heard their excruciating wailing as the earth was swallowing them up. Does God take authority seriously? He surely does. In fact, as we give thought to that, why don't we use the remainder of our lesson this morning to at least highlight some matters of applications. We will be brief in our remarks or comments relative to each one, but you'll notice the first one is the very idea that we just mentioned. If authority was not important, then God would not have dealt with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in the way that He did. He would have allowed them perhaps to remain alive. They may have suffered some punishment, but yet remained alive, but it wasn't so. God, in fact, eliminated them from the earth, for they were a bad yeast among the people of Israel. God didn't want His people hearing this murmuring and complaining, questioning the authority that God had vested. For that reason, you'll notice what comes next. There are a host of passages that highlight the seriousness with which God considers authority. In Luke 17 verse 14, for example, here in the midst of a New Testament situation, wasn't it true that God healed, or rather Jesus healed several lepers, ten of them to be exact. And we notice after doing so, it was Jesus who said, go to the priest. Now let's face it, the Lord was higher in authority than any of those priests. He was the Son of God, but yet as a result of their living beneath that Old Testament law and out of respect for the authority inherent in it, you need to go to the priest, and so they did. Do you see God's suggestion, His statement about the importance of authority? You'll notice beyond that in Acts 4 verse 7, Peter and John were being questioned or arraigned by authorities in those early chapters of the book of Acts. So much so that here were these two, Peter and John, preaching in a public way. And finally, these Sadducees and Pharisees, the religious leaders, came to them and said, By what authority do you do this? Who has given you the authority to preach and to make the statements that you have? Even those religious leaders understood the importance of authority. Thus, they asked Peter and John, Where did you get this authority? Isn't it amazing then some other appreciations almost naturally follow? Isn't it true that the Bible on several occasions reminds us that sometimes men go their own way, they want to do what they want to do despite what God has commanded? In Judges 17 verse 6 as well as Judges 21 25, those two verses both read identically the same. There was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They didn't seek any authority higher than themselves. They did what they wanted to do and God was not happy. Isn't it still the case that those last six chapters of the book of Judges are some of the most dark, unpleasant readings in all the Old Testament? We see the grossness of Israel's sins in part for this very reason. They didn't respect God's authority. 
You'll also notice in 1 Kings 12, 28 and following, on that occasion it was Jeroboam who thumbed his nose at God's authority. God had already decreed that there was to be worship at Dan and at Bethel, two cities well understood in the land of Canaan. Jeroboam said, I believe I have a better idea than that. And so he ordained other places of worship. He ordained other considerations. You'll notice they were supposed to go to Jerusalem. This man Jeroboam, the one who caused Israel to sin, he set up places both at Dan and at Bethel, which God had not authorized. It's no wonder that later we read statements like this concerning Jeroboam. He made Israel to sin. Wouldn't it be terrible to be a leader in a civil way of a group of people, and yet the epitaph that might well be written off him is he made God's people to sin. That would be terrible, beyond description. And yet that's what was said of Jeroboam. Later on, you'll notice in Jeremiah 10, 23, this summary statement is found. Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. May I suggest to you then, in light of that opening set of comments, look at the next application. We've learned that authority is exceedingly important with God. The next point is this. Rebellion to God's established authority is severely punished. You already notice what happened to Nathan, or rather to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. The earth swallowed them whole. They were eliminated. They were put to death immediately by the God of heaven. That just gives us a taste of how serious it is and how sore the punishment is for those who in fact rebel against God's authority. In 3 John 9, Diotrephes fits into that description, doesn't he? Here was one, we learn in that little one chapter book, who was of sufficient pomp and pride that he cast people out of the church when he did not have the authority to do it. John said, when I come, I'll deal with Diotrephes. You and I can only wonder when John did make his way to that place to visit Gaius, when he came to visit that location, what did he have to say to Diotrephes? My suspicion is it was extraordinarily firm, extraordinarily to the point, and calling into question the error of this man's way. Look at another example. In 2 Timothy 4.15, Alexander the coppersmith. Here was one who made such problem for Paul. You'll notice that Jesus, or rather Paul, on that occasion said that the Lord will reward him according to his doings. Isn't it true that you and I in this life may not be able, and we ought not to be taking vengeance? But isn't it true God keeps a record of all that rebellion? He keeps a record of the disrespect anyone extends toward the authority he has vested, and he will deal with it appropriately. May we never, ever forget that thought. Finally, you'll notice that there is the devil as well as those angels that chose to follow him. Jesus did say in Matthew 25, 41, didn't he, that there is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. It is this place of Gehenna fire. Does God take then that rebellion seriously? We notice in both Revelation and the book of Jude that the devil in fact raised himself up against God and in fact led a rebellion in heaven against God. God dealt with it. He cast him down, Revelation 12, verses 1 and following. And notice that his angels, according to 2 Peter 2, 4, are to this day reserved in chains under everlasting judgment until the darkness of that great day. You see, God doesn't look lightly upon challenging authority that he has vested. Perhaps finally you'll notice in Jude verse 6, 
In 2 Peter 2, 4, those verses we noted just a moment ago, all of them highlight the seriousness with which God approaches this matter of authority. What about a third observation, a third application, if you will? At the top of that slide, we immediately learn that all individuals, no matter their intentions, do not have the God-given right to officiate or to hold offices of authority. Isn't that interesting? We live in an age and in a time when most people think in the interest of fairness, equity to everybody, everybody ought to have equal right to doing anything they want to do. Be that leadership in the church, be that other activities associated with the church. Cora, Dathan, and Abiram, you could argue, had a good idea in mind. They wanted to help Moses and Aaron to better officiate over this large number of the children of Israel. God said, that doesn't matter. I have not authorized Korah, Dathan, and Abiram to do that. I have authorized Moses and Aaron to do that. And there is to be no trifling with that authority that I have put in place. Let's develop that thought a little bit more carefully, for do we not see it in a number of places in the Bible? In 1 Samuel 13, we have one of the most compelling records in all of the Old Testament, it seems to me, as it touches this subject. Let me fill in the details if I might. At this time, Saul was the king of Israel. He was the first king. He'd been hand-selected by God. He was a tall, handsome, strapping man. All the women had their sights set on him. Saul seemed to be the perfect leader. You'll notice, though, in 1 Samuel 13, there was an occasion in which Samuel was supposed to come to Saul and Samuel was going to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. So this was to be a very holy time. Samuel was supposed to come. The congregation was going to be gathered to witness this marvelous event. And the entire congregation was to be blessed by what they witnessed and observed. However, something happened. Samuel delayed his coming. The text doesn't say why he delayed it, but he was a little bit late in coming. In fact, longer than Saul could tolerate. The people began to pack their things and leave. Saul said, I cannot let them leave. I am their king, and I, in fact, will be the one to officiate on this occasion. I'll offer the burnt offerings. I'll offer the peace offerings. Samuel just hasn't come in time. That's his fault, not mine. In the very next verse, Samuel came. His first words to Saul were, Thou hast disobeyed the Lord, and God will take the kingdom from you, and He'll give it to one better than you are. Now immediately, isn't it true that it would be so easy to justify Saul? He was only trying to have a worship service. He was only trying to officiate in such a way before the people left. He didn't want them to leave. He wanted them to participate in worship. God said, that doesn't matter. Saul, you do not have the authority to offer burnt offerings or peace offerings, either one. You are not the priest. And in verse 14 of that chapter, God made the decree, the kingdom, Saul, will be rent from you. And it was. What does that say about convenience? So many individuals are motivated and prompted by convenience. I can take care of this. I will take care of that matter. And in so doing, surely God will be pleased because this is a good thing. Not so. If God has not authorized an individual to do those things, if He hasn't given His stamp of approval, that is sinful. And we notice immediately that Saul wasn't the only one who fell victim to this. In 2 Chronicles 26, we notice that another king, Uzziah, did the same thing. He was stricken with leprosy throughout all the days of his life because he trifled with God's authority. 
What about Uzzah who reached out his hand and touched that Ark of the Covenant because the oxen stumbled? Uzzah, you didn't have any authority to touch that Ark. Your intentions may have been good. You may have just been trying to steady it so it wouldn't fall off the card and burst. That doesn't matter. You do not have the authority, Uzzah, to do that. And you'll notice Uzzah died on the spot. God took his life. May we never forget, God takes authority very seriously. Whether it be in His family, whether it be in the family of mankind, whether it be in civil government, whether it be in the church, He takes that authority very seriously. It is with that in mind we observe these statements. In Romans 4 verse 3, what saith the Scriptures? Paul, again, was a very bright man, but he knew in answer to the matter of authority, we've got to consult the Word of God. What saith the Scripture? It is with that in mind we come to the closing observation in our lesson this morning. Finally, you'll appreciate there can be such a dramatic and amazing blessing for that group of people who do respect God's authority. They can live in harmony with one another. They can live in peacefulness with one another and with their leaders. They can, in fact, be a bright and shining beacon to others in this world who do not respect authority. So often in the New Testament, you'll notice that some of these statements appear. It seems that to respect God's authority is linked time and again with peace. The understanding of tranquility and serenity, the understanding that things can and will be well with you if you will but respect the authority of God. You'll notice in particular in Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 to 15, that chapter surely is one of the most intriguing in the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy. That chapter is easily divided into two parts. Verses 1 to 15 make a description of the blessing of respecting God's authority and obeying Him. Verses 16 to 68, the much longer portion of the chapter, highlights what will befall those who do not respect God's authority. And may I say to you, the reading that closes that chapter is not very pleasant. It states some of the things that people will suffer if they refuse God's authority. As we come here to the close of this lesson this morning, May I ask you to appreciate these concluding remarks. First of all, this interesting scene in the book of Numbers. It does highlight, doesn't it, how seriously God considers authority. And may you and I be quick never to forget it. In particular, beyond that, we've quickly observed these four interesting and rather salient points. First of all, we gave thought to the importance of authority as God has invested it, as He has set it forth by delegation. We also have noticed, furthermore, that God quickly and enormously punishes those who question the authority He has established. Thirdly, you'll notice that every individual, all individuals do not have the authority to do things in the name of the Lord, despite what some people may say. And finally, what a grand blessing there is to those who do respect God's authority and live in harmony with that which He has decreed. I hope this morning as each of us give thought to our life that we will at least in passing question for a moment the nature of how seriously do I and you take the authority of God? Do we respect it above all things else? Or do we try to elevate ourselves above what God has said? If it's the latter, please this very day make a change in your course of life. Come to your Lord and bow in humble submission before Him and allow Him to cleanse you of all those sins of rebellion and allow you to live in beautiful and perfect harmony with Him. 
Today, if there might be one or more in this audience that would fit into that category, let today be the day you make things right with your Lord. You do respect His authority in all matters, and you recognize from Colossians 1.18, He is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. The plan of salvation requires you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess the name of Christ as the Son of God, and be baptized. If we could assist you in that way today, or to assist you in coming back to your first love, Revelation 2.5, we'd be honored to pray with you and for you. Either of these things, if they would be the need of your life, please respect God's authority and reply to it at once while together we stand and while we sing.